This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hey, this is Morgan Lee. I'm a co-host here at Quick to Listen, and today I have a guest host with me, Mark Galley, our editor-in-chief. Good to be with you. I, I just think our listeners ought to be aware of what you're wearing today, even though that's politically incorrect for me to say it. It's sackcloth and ashes. All right. For everyone who doesn't know, guys, at the time of this recording, we are essentially 12 hours past the time that the Cubs came back against the Giants, leaving me pretty inconsolable. Yeah. She's fasting for three days, sackcloth and ashes. It's not doesn't accord with the company dress code, but I told your supervisor not to be too hard on her today. And he did come into my office and offer me a blessing this morning. And then was like, ha, 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 the Cubs won. Well, thank you, Mark, for you caring about me, I guess, if that's a form of care. And yes, if anyone wants to offer condolences for the Giants, hit me up on Twitter. I am very open to that. Mark, I'm really excited that you're joining us today because, as we know, this has been a really interesting week politically and also with regards to our movement, evangelicals. As almost all of our listeners are aware, last week, the Washington Post released a video of Donald Trump candidly bragging about aggressive groping and kissing of women. I'm not sure that some of the language that is used in this video is appropriate for quick to listen, but the video is widely available online. And this particular video, which was taped in 2005, has had a significant impact on the GOP political landscape. So many Republican politicians, including Utah's governor, Gary Herbert, and Arizona Senator John McCain, were among the many that said that they would now be revoking their support for Donald Trump. On Monday, GOP House Leader Paul Ryan all but conceded the election, saying that he would no longer campaign for Trump, but instead would only be campaigning to keep the GOP's majority in Congress. So I bring up those political points just to kind of juxtapose against the evangelical supporters and how they responded to this particular video. Names like James Dobson, Tony Perkins, Jerry Farwell, none of them wavered in their support, with the exception of theologian Wayne Grudem, who had earlier endorsed Trump and then withdrew his announcement, saying that some may criticize me for not discovering this material earlier, and I think they are right. I did not take the time to investigate earlier allegations in detail, and I now wish I had done so. If I had read or heard some of these materials earlier, I would not have written as positively as I did about Donald Trump. So to talk about this movement, do you want to tell us a little bit about who the guests are on the show this week? Yeah, I'm really excited about our two guests because I think they're going to uh, bring some uh, good comment to this very confusing and uh, aggravating world we find ourselves in right now. Uh, Matthew Lee Anderson, I've known for a number of years now. He's the founder and lead writer of uh, Mirror Orthodoxy, which is a website slash blog whose aim is we host thoughtful and gracious conversations about Christianity's shape in the public square. And that sounds very similar to the type of things Christianity today wants to do. So very excited to have Matthew on our show. He's the author of Earth and Vessels, Why Our Bodies Matter to Our Faith, and The End of Our Exploring, a book about questioning and the place of confidence of faith. He's currently producing a doctorate of philosophy in Christian ethics from Oxford University. I first got to know Matt by reading his uh, article in The City called The New Evangelical Scandal, which he wrote in 2009, and I'm hoping he's going to 
refer to that because even though that article is seven years old, I think there were a lot of things he said in it then that apply especially to this last week. Our other guest is Jamar Tisby. He's the president and co-founder of the Reformed African American Network, where he blogs about theology, race, and culture. I'd encourage you to go visit his About page. There's a number of very fine articles he's written there. The one that captured my attention recently was Reformed Theology is Indigenous to African American Theology, in which he talks about some of the universal, uh, transcendent themes of Reformed Theology and how they apply to African American Theology. I thought it was a fresh way to think about those two topics. He's written for Christianity Today also, as is Matt, for Urban Faith and for the Gospel Coalition. He serves as director of the African American Leadership Initiative and special assistant to the chancellor at RTS, uh, Jackson. And he also is pursuing a PhD in history, so he and I are buds in that regard. Not that I have a PhD in history, but I love history, <laughs> uh, at the University of Mississippi. So we're uh, just so excited to have you, you two gentlemen on and looking forward to the conversation. How's it going, guys? Do you have any relatable sports stories that will allow you empathy with my situation? Well, I grew up in uh, northern Illinois, not far from Chicago, so I was actually pretty excited the Cubs won. Oh, my Sorry. gosh. Thank you for your not empathy, in other words. I'm of no help here. I'm I'm homeless when it comes to sports. The, the team that I cared most about growing up, uh, the Seattle Sonics, left uh, the city several years ago and went to Oklahoma City. And so I, you know, that's the sport that I love the most. And, and you know, the Mariners, God bless them, are always <laughs> on the cusp of the playoffs and ever making it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very sad. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for your opinions. And like I said, lack of empathy. This is the time of the show where we are going to talk about our gut check. So Mark and I are going to jump back to what we were talking about earlier with evangelicals and their support of Trump in the wake of this recent video that came out. Mark, I'm just going to throw it for you. Give us the 140 character feeling that you had. Well, regarding the video, it was, so what's exactly new about this? He's been talking like a man who would do this sort of thing. And then when it came to reactions of especially evangelical leaders, I was frankly astonished that uh, some of his supporters weren't more shocked and appalled. So my gut check was very similar to yours, which I was almost confused why it was news. And in fact, I I remember just being frankly astonished that people were saying that this was going to be some sort of a game changer because I, I didn't understand how this changed the game from earlier scandals. With larger evangelical support, I guess at this point, I've gotten very cynical about evangelical support. So I wasn't necessarily that surprised. It seemed that most of the people, I, in fact, with the, with regards to Wayne Grudem deciding that he was not going to endorse Trump, I think that was where I was surprised. I was surprised that someone was willing to stand up there publicly and say, like, this is a line too far and I'm not going to go there. I was not surprised that either he said it or that it was a game changer. A lot of the things that he has said and done have been rationalized all along as um, politically expeditious for him uh, as tied to his sort of political aspirations and um, as tapping into sort of the darker subcurrents of American life. And, and in that sense, they, they were sort of almost treated by as acceptable political acts in certain quarters. Um, but this was him as a non-political actor on video, not just saying horrendous things about women, but then you see it. I, I think probably the worst part is the after they get off the bus and 
you know, Billy Bush invites him to hug the the young lady. And it's just, it's just, it contextualizes it. It makes it very concrete in a way that you just can't look away. It, it was a very, very shocking sort of video. So I wasn't surprised that it was a game changer. Um, as to the evangelical response, well, I'm sure we'll talk more about that. <laughs> yeah, and I think I share, share your opinion, Morgan, the, of kind of skepticism at this point of a lot of things, whether the Republican Party as a whole or white evangelicals within uh, the Republican Party. From that standpoint, it certainly didn't surprise me. The words that Trump used, they're just shocking. I mean, they jarring to the ears. And so it doesn't surprise me that this was sort of particularly outrageous for, for all the reasons that Matt mentioned, but the, the responses haven't been terribly unexpected uh, from my perspective. So let's get into a little bit the difference um, or the disparity in outrage and consequently action with regards to GOP politicians versus evangelical leaders. It was impressive to me that so many GOP leaders decided to unendorse Trump. And I've, we've seen this morning that a number of them, like John Thune, a fellow alumni of Biola University, our joint alma mater, has actually decided he's gone back from his unendorsement of Trump and is now going to uh, support him. Wow. What was the explanation on that? Uh, I haven't seen one, but it's the the whole thing is seemed like it was a politically safe moment for those in the Republican leadership to uh, distance themselves from someone who they never really wanted to begin with, but were stuck with. But the evangelicals, the evangelical leadership, their whole game, and specifically the religious right, the political institutions, their whole game is having influence within an ad administration when they are in power. If they walked away from Trump in this moment, they have no influence whatsoever if he were to win. And if they stay with them, they get to have tons of influence because they are some of the only people who did stand by Trump and they provided cover and so on and so forth. And so their, their, their influence over a Trump administration, they tell themselves, I think, would be magnified. And so that, that sort of rationalization, I think, drove a lot of the uh, politically active religious right to try to find ways of mitigating or softening what he said and, and to keep evangelicals in the fold. Well, let me push back on that and just ask, wouldn't that be the same consideration for uh, Republican politicians, especially Paul Ryan? If if Trump were to win, he's got to work with him. So wouldn't, he, wouldn't it be in his self-interest to at least uh, say nothing and uh, go along to get along till the election was over? Uh, it just seems like there may be something else going on the, in the evangelical uh, reason for defending um, Trump beyond the fact that they want to have power with him. Because, I mean, any reasonable observer would, would say he's not going to be president. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's all a fair point. I mean, it's, it's very clear that he is not going to be president now. Um, when the video first came out, it, the effects of it were at that point uncertain. You know, someone like Paul Ryan has not, at, even at this point, actively opposed Trump. Uh, what he said is that he won't campaign for him any further, and he'll focus on sort of down-ticket races. But I, you might be right. You might be right. I, I'm sure you are, that there are further explanations that we can look for here. Maybe the visceral reaction against Hillary Clinton trumps—sorry, well, that's a bad pun. My apologies. Anything else for the religious right at this point? 
Hillary is the epitome of evil, capital E, and therefore they have to be for anyone who's not Hillary. I don't know if that plays a role in their continued loyalty to Trump as a candidate. Yeah, I absolutely think it does. Yeah, I'd agree. You know, we all have many identities, right? Like for for all of us, the primary identity would be as Christians and all that that entails. For me, a secondary identity is as an African-American. And so from my perspective as a racial minority, the whole thing is is baffling yet predictable that Donald Trump out of 16 candidates would end up being the nominee is on one hand utterly perplexing. On the other hand, it doesn't surprise me in the sense that what he's saying to and what what he's playing to have been present within the religious right and the GOP for for literally decades, at least since the mid 20th century and certainly before that in other forms. And so when when he first started to become a major talking point, like, okay, he's 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 actually going to stick around. When that first started to become a reality, I remember thinking, well, what he's saying isn't dramatically different than what I've been hearing all along. It's just been politicized in a lot of, uh, you know, he's folks in politics, business, or Christianity uh, wouldn't use the same language. But personally, and I don't mean this to be harsh, I think they're talking about the same things. I think they're talking about nativism. I think they're talking about xenophobia. I think there's this central idea within white evangelicalism and republicanism that the, that the country is somehow ours and we're losing it to those other people, whoever they might be. And so the reactions don't surprise me. Um, what surprised me is any support whatsoever for this candidate, but I am still baffled and I'm sure we'll talk about the why now question. That's the only thing, you know, that that really still surprises and perplexes me to a certain extent. Um, it was clear to so many people who Trump was even before his candidacy. But now, why now, whether it's Republican leaders or Christians who say, OK, this is a bridge too far. Yeah, I'd add a kind of a historical note here, Jamar, and that is my wife uh, found something on the internet, where else do you find these sort of things? A conversation between Ronald Reagan and uh, the elder George Bush when they were in the middle of some campaign and having a debate, and they were discussing immigration. The interesting thing about the conversation is they were both heartily for immigrating and integrating, especially Hispanics, into American culture. So that's like 25 years ago. So I don't think republicanism or even the religious right was committed to nativism or xenophobia then. It doesn't seem like it, but certainly something has happened in the last 20 years. Do you, or do you disagree? Yes, I disagree. <laughs> because even you bring up Reagan uh, in 1980, one of his first speeches was in Mississippi in Neshoba County. Now, if you remember back to the civil rights era, Neshoba County is where the three civil rights workers, Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, disappeared. They were found later, months later, in an earthen dam. They had been killed for going down there and promoting voting rights for African Americans. When uh, Reagan went down to Neshoba County, to the Neshoba County Fair, this huge um, annual event in the county, he invoked the language of states' rights. 
which every Mississippian knew meant the federal government's going to stay out of Mississippi and it's not going to force us to integrate racially. And so I don't know what Reagan was thinking in, in the exchange that you talked about. I don't know if he's talking out of both sides of his mouth or he had a change of heart, but we're talking 36 years ago in 1980. And let's not forget the way he rose to national prominence was by spouting that same kind of rhetoric out in California, which played to the growing ideologies of white suburbanites that were all about individual home ownership, personal morality, and and lots of of issues that prevented uh, integration in schools and and residences. So so all of that's of a piece, and that's what I'm talking about. This doesn't surprise me because it goes back a long, long time. That's a very very appropriate pushback. I appreciate it. One thing that I'm really struggling to understand is from growing up, a lot of my memories of the religious right have to do with attitudes around sex and holding very, very conservative views on on what sexuality is supposed to look like, but also with regards to dating and physical affection boundaries before dating. And I especially someone like James Dobson, for instance, I associate a lot with just trying to give parents a lot of instruction, which was often like very firm instruction about the way that women were expected to kind of conduct themselves and about the importance of the nuclear family. My big surprise and my big confusion is that I don't understand why something that I always thought was a very sacred cow, which was sexual morality, is something that is being so easily dismissed. Well, I mean, within the evangelical world, it seems like the the teachings about purity were limited by political expedience. So, I mean, evangelicals gravitated to uh, Ronald Reagan to to pick up that thread, uh, despite his divorces. They had no problem uh, going for Newt Gingrich, uh, despite Newt Gingrich's own history of marital troubles. And that, you know, the subthread is something like repentance and forgiveness make it reasonable to support these candidates. Nobody's perfect, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that becomes a convenient way of excusing failures to live up to the kinds of moral code that they are in other contexts advocating. At this point, it's like, is there even reason to believe that they were sincere in what they were trying to say when it comes to their teachings about sexual purity? I think one thing that hasn't been given enough fair play in any press is how big of a deal abortion is to these these people on the religious right. Uh, They tend to add up, there's a thousand... Uh, children that are aborted every hour, more than one a minute. Since we've been on, you know, it's been uh, 30, 40, I don't know how many hundreds have been killed. So they have that in their head, and that that's one thing that overrides everything in their head. And they will put up with almost anyone if they have the vaguest hope that that person will do something to slow that uh, murder rate down. Now, you can argue whether Donald Trump will actually do anything about it. They thought Reagan would do something about it. He did absolutely nothing, little to nothing about it. But I do think we have to give him at least that much credit, moral credit, that that is a, that is a driving concern of theirs. That's right. It's, I mean, uh, T.S. Eliot's line, the final treason is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. A lot of the political institutions within the religious right have inverted that. They've done the wrong thing for the right reason. I think you're absolutely right, Morgan, to, to call into question the sincerity and the depth of their commitments to sexual ethics more broadly. And I think it signifies their willingness to accept this sort of behavior signifies a very narrow view 
of the badness of, of, of abortion and the sort of causes that an abortion culture contributes to and that, and that lead to abortions. But at the end of the day, it is, it is something like a noble intention that is motivating them to do this really bad thing. And there's a lot of sort of tension there for for ethnic minorities and for the poor on this issue of abortion. And so so as Christians, of course, we are against the taking of life in the womb. That 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 is clearly uh, an anti-biblical, non-Christian perspective. But one of the the phrases that is used often, especially in this election cycle is being pro-life from womb to tomb. Uh, that's something that that more and more people are using, but particularly racial minorities have long pointed out what seems like the hypocrisy would probably be the strong word, maybe self-defeating um, is, is a better phrase, uh, idea that let's support life in the womb, but but when they when the baby's born, do we see equally vigorous activity on the part of white evangelicals uh, to support those children who are often born into, you know, low poverty, uh, very disadvantaged positions, and with the systematic sort of opposition to social welfare kind of programs, is is the pro life movement truly pro life from womb to tomb? So so we've looked at at, at this trident opposition to abortion. I mean, folks out marching and everything else and, and organizing politically. But then on the flip side of that, those same people that they're advocating for in the womb, uh, they don't seem to get the same attention as they grow older. But I do think the religious right conservatives have done a pretty good job at they've reversed themselves. In fact, they're one of the people that do the most to help pregnant mothers now and mothers with small children. What they've still not done a good job at is what you pointed out of trying to understand the social and political problems that lead to so many young women getting pregnant out of wedlock and having no no means of support. I don't think they've figured out that that out. So when I look on my Twitter timeline right now, I can find a number of evangelical leaders who have come out against Trump. And yet at the same time, we know that there are plenty of evangelical leaders, as alluded to earlier, who do support Trump and that whether you're looking at Pew numbers or um, Public Religion Institute recently had numbers that they released. There's clear signs that many people who identify or are identified by these surveys um, as evangelicals do support him. I just have a question about base and leaders. To what extent are evangelical leaders who are in favor of Trump mirroring the views of their followers? Um, Does this reflect in any way that those who have come out against Trump are out of touch from their base? And and what are some of like the big picture things that we should be taking away from the movement with regards to how how influential its institutions are or are not? Yeah, I think this is one of the most interesting questions about evangelicalism in this uh, election cycle. I mean, every election that I can remember, we've seen stories about the shifts that have happened within evangelical politics in the uh, distancing between the sort of younger evangelicals and the uh, approaches of the political religious right. But there hasn't been very much actual evidence of that at the voting booth. It's been uh, stories that have been predominantly anecdotal and analysis of sort of the softer aspects of younger evangelical culture. 
this election cycle, we may be for the first time seeing real hard evidence at the voting booth of some of those shifts taking hold, which makes the question of who who speaks for whom really complicated. Because on the one hand, it's not like institutions like the Family Research Council or American, the AFA. It's not like they don't have constituencies who they are representing. They have um, pretty significant constituencies, and and um, they do have a lot of clout as a result. But someone like Dr. Russell Moore also has his own constituency. It's a very different sort of ethos that he is speaking for, but it's but it's there and it's and it's real and it's I think growing. And and most of the younger evangelicals are becoming Russell Moore type evangelicals than Tony Perkins type evangelicals. So I think there is a contest. Do we need a couple rounds of elections, though, to kind of prove that that is true? I only say that because of my own tendency to, like, generalize from what I see on Twitter. It's really it's really tempting. And I've seen a lot of people want to say, oh, you know, the religious right is finished. Like, they, they don't have the clout that they had. I think it's way too premature to say that sort of thing. We do need a couple of election cycles. And I think that we'll start to see data that will come through. I mean, one of the things that I will watch very carefully will be what happens at Liberty University on November 8th. Will Liberty students vote for Donald Trump? I think that's one of the, if you want a like great litmus test about where this movement is heading, that's it. Um, because obviously the president of Liberty University has been one of Trump's most vociferous supporters. But if the students don't support him, and only something like 8% of students voted for him in the primary. Uh, and so if the students don't, come out and support him at 60 or 70%, if it's 20%, then that will be, I think, real hard data that that the generational shift is real and, and that the religious right is going to have to do change if they want to survive. In our broken world, it can be hard to see how Jesus is at work making all things new. That's why every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear through redemptive storytelling and global reporting. Whether it's a pastor in Brazil who uses CT in Portuguese to lead his ministry, or a young believer who wants to think biblically about our culture, CT comes alongside believers to illuminate what it looks like to follow Jesus in today's world. Jesus is transforming his world. CT is equipping his church. Give a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com slash equip. I'd like to ask Jamar a specific question here that I'm wrestling with as editor-in-chief at CT. I'm feeling increasingly there is a, a significant, and Matt's alluded to this, a significant divide among evangelicals that has been, that this election has exposed and I'm wondering if this, uh, you know, as a student of history, if this is a divide similar to the divide in the 50s when Graham broke away from fundamentalism because he couldn't abide by its extremely uh, conservative and both politically and theologically conservative views and basically started what's called now evangelicalism. Are we seeing, are we facing an irreparable divide now between, for lack of a better term, Trump evangelicals and non-Trump evangelicals? I like that. You should definitely put that in writing, Trump evangelicals and non-Trump evangelicals. <laughs> it's such a theological statement. No, I think that's, a, that's a probably a pretty good comparison in the sense that 
on racial issues in particular, uh, Billy Graham, through a series of personal events and relationships, took a more progressive view than older guard Christians or evangelicals. And there was a definite break on that, which, which, which over time uh, became sort of the accepted view, right? I think even Trump evangelicals would at least verbally or in principle affirm integration and racial equality and all yes, that stuff. Right. But it also brings up another interesting parallel, which is my main concern, which is that, you know, and I, I say amen to everything Matt said, uh, it'll be really interesting how, how younger evangelicals vote. But my concern would be similar to the Billy Graham situation, that even if uh, folks make a decisive break with someone like Trump and what he stands for, will that be sufficient to truly reform the party in, in very you know, in-depth ways, and I'm thinking particularly of their appeal to a diverse constituency, will that be enough? Or once Trump is out of the picture and you get a more traditional Republican as the nominee next election cycle, are we going to repeat the same pattern? Which is what I think happened with even Billy Graham evangelicals, which is that there's still, I mean, Billy Graham was in the White House, in the Oval Office with what, four different presidents? And so there was this alignment with politics and Christianity that um, this particular election is serving as a come to Jesus moment for white evangelicals and their um, complicity and alignment with the Republican Party. So I'm just not convinced that even if there's a sharp break with Trump, there'll be a sharp break with uh, Republicanism as it currently stands. There, there are deep reasons for that, Jamar. I mean, like what Mark was saying earlier about abortion policy, you know, I'm, I'm unabashedly a single issue voter. I, I think the whether or not evangelicals can have a home within the Democratic Party depends a lot on whether or not pro-lifers can have a home. And over the past 30, 40 years, the answer to that question has been no, um, that, that the Democrat party is not hospitable to pro-lifers in any meaningful sense. And so I think, you know, there aren't just theological reasons, there aren't even just racial reasons for that alignment. Um, I think there are other reasons. Agreed. I mean, um, it's certainly not about a single issue. However, what has what has happened um, over the past several decades is that Republicans with their party platform have whether it's whether it's an issue with the platform, or an issue with communication or personalities or or all of the above, I don't know. But there has been an increasing constriction of ideology and demography within Republicanism that makes it nearly impossible going forward for Republicans, I think, to win any major elections. Now, down ballots, you know, those those kinds of things are are different. But at the national presidential level, it, and they talked about this in the 2012 autopsy. That's why I'm just like you know, what's it going to take, right? And so in the 2012 GOP autopsy, after Mitt Romney loses the election, you got four more years of a Democratic president. It said, we need to campaign among Hispanic, Black, Asian, and gay Americans and demonstrate we care about them too. We must recruit more candidates who come from minority communities. And I just don't know, um, you know, if, if losing two presidential elections in a row and facing another one is this going to be enough? Is this going to be enough for folks to say, hey, we can stand on conservative principles, but we got to do it in a different way? I'm going to change the subject a little bit to talk about the number of spiritual references that we've been hearing from Trump's defenders. Fox News' Sean Hannity 
mentioned King David's 500 concubines when excusing Trump's comments about women over the weekend. And Mike Pence talked about falling short of the glory of God, which is from Romans 3.23. I'm, I'm curious, like, who are these commentators trying to convince by using Bible verses? I mean, I'm going to let the historians take this, but the great irony of Andy's comments, right, is that uh, David didn't have 500 concubines, Solomon had 1,000, and so you have a sort of grand moment of biblical illiteracy on display, and it resonates with a predominantly biblically illiterate culture. That, to me, sums up the use of the Bible uh, these days. It, it can be a sort of easy justification for whatever you were going to do anyways. Um, and because none of us really know the Bible or know how to read the Bible, people get away with it. But I, I say I want to leave it to the historians because from, from my standpoint, the use of scripture and scriptural imagery has a long history of animating action within American political life. And I think that's something that we should support and encourage and want to see continue. I agree. Uh, uh, that biblical biblical illiteracy part is massive, and there is a long history uh, not only of using uh, religion in public discourse for good purposes, but also of using religion in public discourse to kind of back up whatever you want to say. I mean, obviously, scripture was used to, to, to justify American race-based chattel slavery and even justify segregation. Uh, there's a particular passage in Acts 17, I believe, that, that where it's talking about God has, has placed people in particular places so that they might seek out and find him. That particular passage, which speaks to the beauty of diversity, was used <laughs> to justify, the, uh, for some people, the fact that races should remain segregated, and that's the way God wanted it. So so that's certainly not new. You know, what's interesting is they cite those passages incorrectly, as Matt pointed out, um, but they don't cite the passages that talk about holiness and purity and sexual immorality. Uh, so, so we use it very, very selectively, and it's so damaging. It just, it's like nails on chalkboard to see these particular evangelicals and Christians speaking uh, about religion and using the Bible. I, ju I just, I like, any one of us on this podcast would be much more responsible with Scripture, and I wish mainstream media would find some of those folks for once. Yeah, amen to that. They, and a lot of the passages about personal righteousness— they're 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 in the Psalms, and they they refer to how important it is for the king, the leader, to be a person who's uh, who's righteous both in his personal lives and in the way he inter he enacts justice. So obviously in Scripture it's a both and. There is grace and mercy for the sinner, and there is high expectations for, especially for leaders in the religious community and in the and in the government. So the selective use of Scripture is kind of aggravating in that regard. We've been spending a lot of this conversation, and some of us have been spending a lot of ink or proverbial ink, I guess, um, discussing other people in our movement's blind spots or what we see as their blind spots. All of us have blind spots. And so I'm wondering if for everyone on the show, what of your own political or spiritual blind spots have been illuminated for you this election cycle? I, this is, this is a really hard question. Obviously. Yeah, it's hard to be like, I'm blind here when I don't know that I'm... <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So I probably can't answer it appropriately. But I will say I've written extensively about... Um, it, what interests me most about politics are not the rational elements, because I think that predominantly politics isn't a rational uh, practice. 
Um, it's not which policies are most successful. It's not all the sorts of things that we might hope for. What really interests me about politics are the aesthetic dimensions and the sub-rational aspects of it. And I've written and analyzed uh, about how the electorate responds to charismatic candidates and what sort of things they're willing to overlook on the basis of uh, a good-looking, sort of reasonable-sounding person who can strike all the right notes and so on and so forth. I think this election cycle has highlighted for me how susceptible I am to that as well. So I was, I was in in the early phases of it. I was quite excited about Marco Rubio and Rubio's efforts. We'll see what happens going forward. But he's lost all of my confidence and my support for not just the way in which he has he he sort of conducted the end of his primary campaign, but everything that has happened subsequently. And I've and I've wondered whether. I missed. You mean his endorsement of Trump? His endorsement of Trump, his his refusal to follow what seemed to me to be very clearly what his uh, gut was telling him to do, which was unendorse Trump and tell him that, you know, and, and tell the world that he couldn't support him, even in the primary. I mean, the most sort of authentic and raw moment that we had in this campaign, I think, was when Rubio uh, was asked whether he would keep supporting Trump, and he said it, it's getting harder and harder every day. And his unwillingness to follow that sort of conviction, I think, just calls into question for me his ability to lead well. And I think that I was I was probably suckered, as many people were, by uh, his charisma and his and his genuine political talent. Yeah, we 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 are willing to sort of make a whole bunch of compromises to support you know the 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 person or the cause that we think is right. Um, as we've seen on both Republican and Democratic sides and, and, and all sides of the political spectrum. Uh, for me, what this election cycle has highlighted is, you know, almost how politically passive I've been as an American citizen. You know, it's not that I didn't vote or things like that, but uh, this election highlights just how important it is every day as a citizen of this nation to be engaged, to know the issues, uh, I think there's a lot more things happening at the local and state level that are that are you know more immediately applicable to the day-to-day -day lives of people. But uh, to be tuned into those those dynamics as well as at at the national level, I hope what I'm learning from this is is to have uh, that kind of uh, awareness and engagement even after you know it, it it ceases to be trending on Twitter or every other um, news article is about it. Uh, that being said, I do want to caution evangelicals, I think, because we're Christian, we always want to look at our own sins and our own faults and our own blind spots. And that's that's definitely uh, biblical. That's definitely good. You know, taking the log out of our own eye before we try to pluck out the splinter in someone else's. At the same time, I don't want to deflect attention from this very important moment of self-critique that not only white evangelicals have, but just Republicans in general. I think this is an incredibly sensitive and important time to really look at some underlying assumptions and hopefully come out the other end, you know, more committed to conservative principles. That's great. Uh, but as well, thinking carefully about messaging, perception, and what folks are really holding on to as valuable. So, you know, just in this you know, my own faults and, and, and sins first, 
I, I hope that doesn't take away from this critical moment that could yield some very positive things for all Americans. Uh, I think my blind spot was true of many um, Americans, certainly of the you know suburban middle class, moderate political points of view, the energy and passion with which people have responded to a person like Donald Trump. And this, uh, this we've tended to associate it with uh, lesser educated, unemployed, rural whites, but apparently it's, it spans more than that, that subgroup. And I guess I'm, uh, I'm of the view that the people who support him aren't stupid, racist, xenophobics. I mean, I think they do have some views that I find repulsive, but I think there's reasons they hold those views and they've not been heard in American life. And I th- we need to figure out a way to let them be heard. So for an example would be, my wife works for World Relief. Her job is to resettle refugees in this country. So our family's totally refugee friendly. I have no problem uh, with liberal immig- immigration pr- uh, policies being promoted. But it occurred to me for the first time that I don't really, I am not really affected uh, when we have uh, immigrants enter our country. That it, do, and that doesn't change my life what one whit. But there are people that live in parts of the country where excessive immigration does affect them very personally. And so I guess my blind spot is, okay, I have to think about uh, those people and try to figure out how, how are we going to promote a generous immigration policy so that it, it does, in fact, have little to no impact on the people who are already living here. Uh, so there's a whole class of people who are really angry and really frustrated, and they're not angry and frustrated just because they're stupid people. There's real reasons that's prodding them. And my hope after the election is that uh, one job of Christianity today would be to help think of who are these people, how are churches ministering to them, how can we, how can we be a blessing to them and help them as Americans and as most of them are, many of them are fellow Christians. My blind spot is something I actually thought about while we were doing the show. I was considering again, about how my personal visceral reactions to Donald Trump have put me in a place where I feel like I've tried to have to justify voting for other candidates who I may not find palatable and how my visceral reactions that I have have directly prompted that type of sense of like, I need to rationalize something that I feel uncomfortable with on the other side. And I guess the blind spot there is that I think that many other people feel the same way I do, but directly opposite in terms of the candidates, where they feel very provoked in the same way, and they are having similar visceral reactions. And so, yeah, that, that it's a similar dynamic that, that we're operating with. It's just that that enthusiasm um, or disgust is getting thrown in opposite directions, and that wanting to justify um, something that we find unpleasant um, when we're so outraged by the other side is something that I think is very human um, and something that we need to be all aware of when we're when we're trying to make compromises with ourselves about different moral decisions we're going to make. Thank you all for engaging in this really great discussion. We invite all of our listeners to follow up on the discussion on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash CT podcasts. We're also on Twitter at CT podcasts. And now we're going to move to the time of the show, which we call precious moments. And we're all going to take a deep breath and have a little bit of like five minutes of levity here as we remember that life is defined by politics, but not only politics. I'm asking everyone to share something right now that is not political, that is bringing them joy these days, and also where our listeners can find them after the show. So Jamar, do you want to go first? Uh, Sure. The Netflix series, Luke Cage, 
Now, Luke Cage uh, is about a superhero in Harlem who's who's African-American. He's bulletproof um, and super strong. And it's a, it's a fun uh, show to watch. But they cut scenes from uh, that series and put it together in the Family Matters uh, opening song. And it's, I've, I've favorited it on Twitter and I'm going to watch it every time I feel down. So if people want to find a link to that, they can follow you on Twitter. Is that right? Yes, at Jamar Tisby. You can also visit the Reformed African-American Network on the web, raanetwork.org. And you can listen to our podcast, Pass the Mic. Download Satchel Player uh, is an app where you can donate directly to the podcast, or you can find it on any major uh, podcast platform. Awesome. Matt? Yeah, I'd say two things, <laughs> two things that are very different from each other. The first is Box Mass and B Minor, which uh, we've had on on repeat in our car for at least six <laughs> months now. Uh, and every time I get in my car, I know I'm just going to have such a great time hearing one of the greatest pieces of music that has ever been written. It's amazing. It's it's. But did you just amazing. put it on one day? Or? No, no. We, we I had heard it before, and so no. I was. It was an intentional decision, but we've we've not yet reversed it. Uh, that decision. We haven't taken it out. The other night, I I drove to a friend's house and listened to the concluding piece uh, to to that uh, phenomenal phenomenal mass and it's it's just glorious so that's that's made me really happy the other thing that has made me really happy as i said very different the uh the conclusion of monty python's life of brian uh in which everybody is up on a cross and one of them starts singing always look on the bright side and all of these convicts join in together singing you know always look on the bright side as they're being crucified um to me that that sort of sums up our response to 2016 it's miserable it's going to be painful for all of us but you know always look on the bright side of life where can people find you online Follow me on Twitter if that's your thing at uh, at Matt Lee Anderson. I'm on Facebook a lot as well, and uh, I write at uh, Mirror Orthodoxy and MirrorOrthodoxy.com, and also a lot on Medium these days. So awesome, Mark. Okay, in a completely different direction. I got to play golf for the first time in about two weeks. I usually try to play once or twice a week, squeeze out nine holes here and there. But golf is one of those sports that's absolutely uh, culturally useless right now. It's not very good exercise. It takes way too much time. And its its goal is fairly idiotic. It's you're basically trying to get a little white ball in a little white hole when you do that nine or 18 times. But there's something about golf that uh, makes the whole world shrink to a very simple proposition, which is to get that little white ball in that little hole. And the rest of the world goes away for two to four hours. And it's really quite remarkable. Uh, I'll have to talk to Jamar about it sometimes. Uh, he talked about the uh, reform theology as indigenous to African-American theology. I think reform theology is indigenous to uh, people who play golf, too. And we can talk about that <laughs> another time. Fascinating. Mark, can people find you? They can find me. I do do the Twitter type thing with a, with a newsletter that's called The Galley Report that you can subscribe to for free. Seems like that's a good price. Uh, it uh, is, can be found at uh, christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport. If that doesn't get you there, you can always write me, and I'll make sure you get to the right place to subscribe. And that's mgalley at christianitytoday.com. 
All right. The things bringing me joy this week are more writing opportunities. So I'm going to be doing some reporting about a neighborhood over from mine. For listeners that don't know, I live in Chicago, and I'm going to be working on a reporting assignment for the neighborhood of Austin, which is further west than I live in, with a couple of other local news reporters. And I'm excited to learn more about this particular neighborhood, and I will fill people in through the course of the next 10 weeks as we work on it. But tonight we're learning how to FOIA something, so to, how to use the Freedom of Information Act to request documents from the government. And I've never done that before, but it sounds really interesting as an investigative piece. And then I'm also starting a writing group with a couple of other friends, and that will be finally kicking off after about six weeks of deliberations over a time that will kick off tomorrow. And just a little tidbit, I was in very much conflict because it was scheduled the same time that the game five that Giants were supposed to play was going to be in and trying to figure out how I could get out of it. It was providential. Well, I don't want to think about it like that. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining the show. It was great to have you on. Um, Quick to Listen is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, SoundCloud. Please go on to iTunes, though, if you like this episode or didn't like this episode. That's the best place to leave feedback and give us reviews as well. So thank you, everyone, for listening. We will all see you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.